0: to cook a meal for 10 people, I literally cook the whole thing in my head first uh, before I do it. That's, that's what I have to do, and writing even more so.
1: Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off-topic. Today, I talk with screenwriter Bettina Gillois, who has written some of the most classic sports movies to hit the big screen in recent years. Movies like this one. This is gonna come down to which runners can handle the pain. Let's hit it again. Mr. White, each hour that my boys train with you,
0: they do not work with me. That's food off our table. No one stays in McFarland unless they have to. There ain't nothing American dream about this place. I'm guessing running's the best thing you've got.
1: Me too. Bettina is extraordinary not just in the fact that she's a woman who's thrived in the typically male-dominated world of sports movies, but also for the fact that she's originally from Germany, even as she writes incisively about sports and racial issues in America. As you'll hear in the interview, her outsider status as a European kid in American schools instilled in her a kind of empathy that drives her writing. This interview is full of insights about how to research and write real-life stories. She actually teaches writing at Antioch College. Our conversation took place in Bettina's living room in Los Angeles, in the company of her little dog, Symphony. We actually talked last fall, this episode just missed being a part of season one, but the ground we cover is pretty timeless, as you'll discover if you're at all interested in writing, or even if you just love movies and like hearing about how they're made. This episode is brought to you by my longtime partners at Airtrex, the online service that allows you to plan round-the-world or multi-stop flight itineraries for vagabonding journeys. Check out their awesome flight planning tools at Airtrex.com. Okay, so here's Bettina Gillois talking about her life as a movie writer and the events in her life that made that career happen. You initially came on my radar for writing sports movies, for writing Glory Road and in McFarland, USA. Um, And I was really... One thing about sports movies that is a curious obstacle is the fact that a, a sports movie probably isn't going to be made unless the heroic team wins, unless the protagonist team wins. And so you, as, a, as a storyteller, you sort of have to find other ways to keep the tension as it's going. And in McFarland, USA, I thought it was interesting that as this... I was a cross-country runner, and as that team is going through its ups and downs, and it seems clear that a victory might happen, suddenly it becomes about the coach and his family. You know, the, the story itself focuses about his coach and his family. Uh, and so I'm curious to know, just, just up front, about how, what it's like to write about real people, because that seems like mostly what you write about, and how you solve those problems. In a second I'll go back and find your journey into the screenwriting mm-hmm. world. But just since that was my first point of interest, like this is, it just struck me as a as a very smart way to solve that narrative problem of a cross country runner. Again, I, I ran cross country; it's not too exciting of a sport. Uh, and then suddenly, there's this story about about the coach and and his dedication to community. So, how do you when you enter a project? How do you think in terms of those obstacles?
0: Well, I think a big thing even before I approach it as a narrative issue and a problem that, okay, I have a team that's going to win for an entire season, how do I make this interesting, is um, before I do anything else, I th- ask myself, what is the deepest truth about the story that I'm telling? What are, <clears throat> what are the deepest themes, but really the truth? Even before I get to themes, um, because it's not just about being practical, and it's never just about you know, solving the narrative. You're a mechanic on some level as a writer, so you have a lot of issues to solve, you're building an engine, you're you're making things work, but there has to be, for me, there has to be a larger, bigger picture <clears throat> to enter into this with, because um, otherwise, I don't know why I'm telling the story, really. it I think it comes across if it's missing the key element, which is, a deep truth about human beings on some level.
1: Do you need to know that before you start writing, or is that something you can write your way into?
0: I definitely need to. It's the first thing I need to know. If I think about, for instance, okay, cross-country running. Um, what is the deepest truth about cross-country runners? They're about perseverance. They go the long haul. They have to work as a team. These are all human qualities. and. Those are the kind of things I reach for first um, in the basketball story. and In I mean, both cases, you had um, an ethnic story going on as well, a race story. So that's the other thing. Of course, I'm attracted to those stories because they're about more than the sport. Um, that's how you also solve that. You have just things that, that's why they remain Classics or they continue to play Glory Road. It's been 12 years now, and it's still constantly streaming Because it's about something more than just the sports. That's important for me, too. I love sports But it's never just about the sport.
1: One interesting thing about your writing is is it's very American yet You're from Berlin, right?
0: Yes, I was born in Germany But I came to America when I was seven for the first time my father was a professor and he just did a lot of university hopping. He was at MIT and University of Minnesota and Berlin, the technical university, so about every year or two, I just had this mind-bending, almost army brat kind of existence of new continent, new language, everything was gone in a year or two. So that's, I'm sure, affects part of my writing too. I learned how to adapt very fast. I had to always figure out who everybody was instantly, you know, in middle school in Minnesota, you better know who's who in the room, so that made me also be able to figure out people quickly, just the, the instant read scan, like, huh. who's this person, what's going on with them? Um, and I also learned that, you know, to be safe, especially in middle school, again, people are not like the kindest in those at that age. and.
1: That's the nader, I think. Yes, the human worst. Yeah.
0: I um, so I find that if I know people quickly and if I reflect them back to themselves, um, I'm safe. Like I'm not going to be, you know, attacked in middle school. And as life is a perpetual middle school on some level, um, it's that's served me. I can instantly now, and I just do it as a habit. I can get in a cab, and I'll try to figure out the cab driver. If I'll, sit with the president of something and I'll figure out the president of something immediately. Just, there's little tells that people have about what makes them tick. And if you grab onto that right away and show them that you see them, they relax. They feel like this person really knows me and understands me. And I am looking, I am understanding that person. Most people don't look at other people that way, but because I do this, what's the deepest truth, I also do what's the deepest truth about this person um, it's that's how I approach characters i when I write it's like I have to fall in love with them i and I become fiercely um, protective of them and loyal to them and and I think of people and characters, but it's translated for me into life like you know when you go to a funeral and they give the eulogy and when you talk about the person who has just passed away you can think of all those important things about them then they all come to mind. When they're alive you think about all the dumb stupid little things that nobody cared about. The fact that they left the fridge open or the milk on the floor or whatever dumb things. They all don't matter and I feel lucky enough with this writing that I now in life know that they don't matter and I focus always, on who people really are, even when they're still alive, so that I'm able to tell their story. And that's, that's really gratifying for me.
1: I read recently, um, if you're aware, but basically the advice was don't just give compliments to the people close to you, but give them living eulogies, you know, give them that yeah. that narrative that is oftentimes saved for after their life is done. Exactly. I'm curious, were you, did you go to middle school in the United States? Yes. Okay. You don't have the sh- a shred of a German accent. Yes. Is English your second language?
0: It is. Okay. Um, I was seven. I went to second grade in Massachusetts. My dad was at MIT. I went to, into the school, didn't speak a word on the first day. <clears throat> Kids threw rocks at me at the bus stop. I, I think in part, you know, the outsider I re- relate to and I think that's why I tell outsider stories cultural outsiders and because um, that's what I was but Yeah, I think when you're seven you're young enough where you don't get that accent um,
1: So you it feels like you got your instincts for reading people and for sort of taking an interest in People's core at a young age at, at what point did you feel like writing might be something that you wanted to pursue?
0: Um, I um. It was something that evolved I in first grade, I threw myself in front of a girl who was being bullied because she was you know ha- mentally handicapped and I only think of that because it tells me that I, I was a certain kind of person <laughs> even in first grade I had that instinct of protecting the underdog, I guess. then writing became more like a Matter of survival, of the tougher times of moving, of the loneliness, I, the going into your imagination,
1: writing in a journal or stories, or is this when you're a child?
0: Yeah. What stood out is, and I never thought of myself as, oh, I must be a writer because I was a paint. I loved to paint, and I was very artistic with art, with music, and with writing, and I couldn't decide for the longest time between all three, um, but what stood out is that in many classes over the years I would be the one picked to read my story. If, if some writing assignment was made, I remember in fifth grade in Germany I wrote something about my voyage on the cloud and uh, and I got to read that to the class. I Nobody else got to read something to the class. So it, those were the indications that that was Something in me that was, you know. There, Uh, and I wrote when I was twelve and going to um, Minnesota middle school. It was a particularly tough time. I really got sort of treated. uh, It was tough uh, arriving at just twelve and
1: just like junior high bullies. I went through some.
0: I went through some difficult things. Yes, Um, and I wrote a novel. I. I, the way that I dealt with it is I stayed at home and wrote about a suicide pact of seven seven young people who decided to jump into a volcano and just add, ended up on the other on some other side of a world and then I just typed and typed you know it was the days of the typewriter I have a manuscript of single spaced you know 100 and some pages. Um, That's a that very was... middle
1: school story, <laughs> yes. you know, that, the, the, yes. the, the wrought emotional life of middle school. <laughs>
0: the escape. Yeah. So I think that these are all the indicators, yes. And then all throughout I wrote poems and funny things and stories and so on. I just, I just kept bouncing back between those three things. I had a brief... Music career. I was writing music. By, by the time I moved to Manhattan, um, I was singing in nightclubs, singing back up and playing keyboards and with Anna Domino and at Nell's you know, in the in the clubs and and I applied to art school. I was painting a lot, um, but there was a day when I finally decided, okay, it's the writing I have to do.
1: Well, you've you've written about. Musicians in in the context of screenplays and this new television show that you, that's that's upcoming and uh, About a painter you had a book about Thomas Kincaid. Uh, did you play sports because that's your other big theme in writing? Right,
0: right. Well, that Is interesting. I th- that's very important to me um, With all of our moves and so on I was the oldest and I have a brother and a sister but somehow I ended up being around my dad a lot, I was through circumstances. We traveled, when we moved to Minnesota, I went ahead with him. Um, So I had a lot of close time with him. Sometimes we traveled and met the family just because of circumstances. A few days later, my mom would bring the younger ones. And I have some fond memories of hanging out with my dad, having him to myself, you know, you don't always have that. And I remember watching the World Cup it was Germany against Holland. We were in Berlin at a hotel waiting to go to Italy for a vacation. And just sitting there watching the World Cup with him, I just, I, I have to kind of bring it back to that, I think. He was a soccer fan and, uh, he liked, and tennis, and it was my way of spending time with him. So I think the way often a son gets to, It's just because of where I was born and the order I got to. And it's really informed me as a woman. I find it extremely important for men to spend time with their daughters the way they would with their sons, not to make a difference. My father never treated me differently. He treated me like a peer or like a son without... It's not like I wasn't the tomboy, it was nothing like that. It was just an intellectual and human equal. so I'm the one. I have everything electronic. I'm fine with. I, I love my toolbox. I the traditional male things. There's these are things that are great, very beneficial for a woman to be able to handle and feel comfortable with. And it's not only that. It's ultimately a man will teach his son through sports, um, you know, how to go out there and conquer. It's. It's how to go out there and solve problems, take over the world, you know, Complete. in your own to, to yes, yeah. to be victorious, to set goals and achieve them. And my father was a supercomputer scientist who came from a little town. He's, you know, the classic story I write about these big journeys of life who um, just worked his way through his own smarts and determination um, wrote two PhD papers just because he could and was the youngest professor at the Technical University of Berlin, established the computer science department. He created it and in 93 or something he had the fastest supercomputer in the world. And you know that fast comu- supercomputers, there's always one that's the fastest. That's like the holy grail of supercomputers and he was one of those people. His huh. institute under his leadership. So What's I his name? Wolfgang Wolfgang Zuluá. Okay. Jiua. Okay. Um, so he was, of course, a role model. He didn't, you know, I wasn't a science person. He'd help, try to help me with my math, and I'd be floundering, and it would drive him insane, you know. Simple math, and I didn't get it. Don't you see it? I, and my mind froze. Like I was never going to ever understand math, just with the pressure. But that gave me an understanding of goals in sports, of winning, of, of going for it, of going for something and seeing no limits. That's really what I learned directly and indirectly from my dad, just to go for it. anything as possible.
1: There's sort of a narrative aspect to sports too. You know, Always. that you can, you, were there conversations? Would your dad talk to you during soccer games and sort of talk about the drama that was happening? Was that a part of the ritual?
0: yeah. Yes, except when we were well, we were, when we were sitting with the, watching the Dutch and Germans play, it was in a little bed and breakfast hotel, and there was a couple from Holland sitting behind us, <laughs> and I felt very aware of them behind our back. You know, their their arms were folded. I just still can see them. They were quite defensive and not happy because Germany won, and it was just people were cheering and. This is the, the writer in me, I was figuring, you know, everybody's emotions were, I was aware of, I felt for the guys in the back. So in that case, with, the, with that one, we, my dad was pretty silent. He was aware of those people too, and he wasn't going to be, but some people are, oh, those Dutch, they can't cut their own cheese. And people <laughs> were making those comments, and I was thinking about those two Dutch people in the back. The entire time.
1: So he had sort of an empathetic instinct as well, that he wasn't just going to paint his face in the German colors no. <laughs> and scream at people. Right.
0: No. No. He was, no, he was too busy for that. Really, just in his whole in his life of intellectual pursuit, which is another thing that really he gave everybody in the family. Um, we all ended up professors or, hmm. um, or just highly engaged in.
1: Writing movies is a, is is a different monster than being a professor, you know. Given you come from an yes. academic family, and I noticed your credits in the Hollywood world start in the early '90s, but then like uh, Glory Road was a mid 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 aughts film, I think. Mm-hmm. So, what was your journey into and through the world of of uh, of screenwriting? Given given that you had other interests as well, right? How did you end up as a well,
0: writer? Well, I from Berlin, I believe in the Following the kind of happenstance thing of life sometimes when you have no plans uh, The world is open. It's it becomes plastic and you can mold molded by your desires and will somehow I've just seen that through writing stories of people and there's so many stories You know the, the story of the guy who arrives with five dollars to his name in some place and ends up with something extraordinary um, somehow when you're that open things are able to happen and narratively I've seen that and in my own life it worked that way I was in Berlin and somebody handed me a village voice there were some Americans from New York they had a restaurant I looked at this village voice I looked and instantly thought I have to go to New York that's it that was just How my I thought <laughs> I was 20 okay. at that point um, I had done University of Minnesota I mean Maryland huh. in Berlin had a program for military and Americans abroad so I was actually going to college in Berlin at the University of Maryland but I saw this village voice and I just had the thought I must go to New York so I did and I went with no plan my dad dropped me off on the sidewalk I had a place to stay for a week I knew with my friend what year was it? um Eighty-two, I think.
1: Eighty-two. So it was more affordable but more dangerous, New York. Yes. Compared it was to def-
0: now. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, my good friend who had lived in Berlin, who was by that time in New York, I was able to stay with her for a week. and But after that, I knew basically nothing except all those New Yorkers that were in Berlin. They had gone back. So I knew a couple of people. but. I needed a job I just said I kind of need a job and I got to be a waitress at the tortilla flats which is still there I was the first waitress and my the John first... <laughs> Steinbeck reference right yes yes exactly um, the first patron was um, got from the talking heads the base David Byrne or not David Byrne the uh, the bass player or I'll have to look it up yeah. but yes so we'll
1: put that in the show notes
0: the guy from the talking heads um, was my With, first and okay, so here. I'm in New York now. This is so this is how this goes, you know, how did he tip? Um, <laughs> I don't remember. It was just <laughs> coffee. Okay, it was but I'm sure you know He was friendly. Everybody was friendly. I was friendly. I'm always friendly mm. um, It's another survival thing and but it's also how I feel I am genuinely Happy to meet anybody because it's like here's a new opportunity to figure out who this person is so I'm right away excited, <laughs> just like I don't let on that I'm trying to figure them out, but I just show that I have very quickly if I can. So. Um,
1: and is this an instinctual or a learned thing?
0: Well, it probably is a learned thing to a certain degree, but I mean, I think you have to be empathic. I think you have to be empathic. I think I did have that that's why me and the bullies throwing myself you know that's why I go back to that okay I must have been empathic (laughs) in first grade so it was there but the learning was the moving the many moves and the I'm in a terrifying environment I just need to figure things who everybody is where the power is where I need to be fast so that has just served me to no end later you know
1: and so you took that attitude into New York into New in 1982.
0: Yes. And it kind of, and, and from there, the random miracles sort of just kept happening. Um, I thought eventually I'd go to school. I had two more years to do, but I applied to art school because I thought maybe that's what I'll do. But, um, and I also applied, applied to Barnard College because those were the two I just thought. I literally didn't, before internet, you know, didn't research much just thought I'll just try those two Otis School of Design (laughs) and Barnard and um, but meanwhile I needed more of a job than the waitressing and I had just said I need a place to stay and somebody said oh I have a guy working on a movie and he's gone for two months you can stay in his loft so suddenly I had a loft and while I was at the loft somebody came in to get their mail from before and saw me looking through want ads and I said well I need a job and he said oh you should be a PA uh, gave me a number. I called a few people. I realized being a production assistant on commercials was actually really hard. I thought, yeah, sure. But <laughs> nobody wanted me. I'd never done it before. So now I was obsessed. Huh. Suddenly I had to be a PA. Like my life depended on it. And I was finally hired on a Trisket commercial because I was so enthusiastic <laughs> and passionate <laughs> <to> the, <laughs> about being a PA. Um, I got to melt the cheese on screen you know, the with the hair dryer and Shirley Jones was there, she was set on you know, switch on your oven, set it to Trisket. And as a PA, if never before first of all, PAs, you know, you're supposed to be in the back getting sandwiches and not melting cheese. So I was already the ambitious PA, clearly, melting the cheese. Somebody said, Is this what you wanna do? I said, No, actually I wanna be a scenic artist And the next week I got a call Somebody saying, I hear you want to be a scenic artist. Wow. So things kept happening like that. Um, so suddenly I had a career as a scenic artist. So I'm working on movies and um, TV w- were shows. Were you in and...
1: Barnard or, or art no, school yet? No, because
0: I had basically arrived just at the when the academic year, okay. so I, there was a year to go. So I had a year of a career that was burgeoning as a scenic artist. Um, but then I got the notice from Barnard that I had been accepted in the spring, and I was bummed for a day, there goes my scenic artist career. Uh, But I knew I just had to go. So I went, I studied English for the first semester, and then I thought, ah, maybe I'll do art history because it sounds slightly more practical. And that was me, this is me being torn all the time. But I think the biggest thing about, not to make this too roundabout, but sometimes things happen like this, Um, I wasn't, still wasn't thinking about movies and I wasn't thinking about writing, but there was a television, um, station that was empty. I had heard about this television station at Columbia University and it's just sitting there. Nobody was using it. Hmm. And
1: had equipment and everything. Yeah.
0: Full equipment, big cameras, you know, everything. And, uh, for some reason, I can't, I don't have, you know, that would be the inciting incident somewhere in the story. But what gave me this idea? I just decided I'm going to do an interview show. I'm going to interview people in the arts um, and air it on public television, which I did uh, for two years. And a practical thought was if I interview people in the arts for two years, surely I'll get a job out of this, you know. (laughs) Just
1: <laughs> what was the name of your show? Um,
0: Art Guard. Okay. Like avant-garde. But, right. And I made sets, uh, backdrops. Uh, you know, I was quite ambitious with it. I did the first two on-air interviews myself. I interviewed Slavat Zuckerman and Andrew Sarris in the first one. Um, I put them together. Sl- Slavat Zuckerman's um, Liquid Sky had just come out. And it was a big you know, underground hit. And Andrew Sarris was great. And they loved meeting each other. The second one was with uh, David Sally and Amos Poe, the f- filmmaker. Uh, and But then after that, I thought, I, I hate being in front of the camera. <laughs> I, I need to be in the background. I need to be the puppet master of sorts. So I directed and just produced it and found talking heads, um, you know, some Barnard students that could do the hosting for oh, okay. me.
1: I thought you were talking about, I thought you found the bassist and interviewed him.
0: <laughs> no, that was a good house. idea, right. I tracked him down, but yeah. many others, Dean Stockwell and filmmakers, and not everybody I can remember right now, but um, and I, about, also I went into different art forms and so on, but my first job out of when I graduated was Slava Zerkerman, my first interview huh. from Liquid Sky. He was doing a film in Berlin that was set in the World War Two time about a Russian um, woman and an American man fall in love and he so he was going to Berlin to research and I, um, I, I became his director's assistant and we traveled to Berlin did all the research went to the archives and things like that and that's by that time now I was into film at least I was learning about it um, from Doing the interviews, I had gotten more familiar with it. And while I was waiting for him to uh, get the funding to do this film, and I was supposed to be his assistant, so I thought, okay, I will hang out for this. This is a big opportunity. and But since I had time, I said to myself, I might as well write a script while I'm waiting. And that's how random <laughs> it actually was.
1: And that I, was your first script.
0: That was my first script. <clears throat> I picked up... Sid Field's screenplay book, got the acts down, you know, knew nothing else, um, wrote a terrible script called A Dangerous Man. It was a black comedy, which young writers often go to because it's like you're avoiding emotion. It's easy. It feels easy, but black comedy is always a sign of you're potentially avoiding emotion. Um, but it was terrible. I was... I. I did have, I did start working at Andy Warhol's uh, factory during this time while I was writing that script. I was a PA again. He had a television show, Andy Warhol's Fifteen Minutes, so okay. um, I was, you know, plugging in lights and all these famous people were coming in and out, uh, doing interviews with Andy. Um, I was actually kind of intensely, constantly thinking, I don't want to be behind the camera. That's, I am not. I meant for something more. So you didn't want
1: to be in front of the camera. No, right. You didn't want to be behind the I just, camera.
0: I just want to be in charge of something, I guess. I don't right. know. If, even if it's my own destiny. And, and that's why the, the writing was important to me. I finished that script and very foolishly, that can happen, thought, okay, I'm ready ready for Hollywood. You know, I got my script. That's all you need, right? You need to get to the end and when you write the end, you're done. So I, I had some... Contacts that were able to get it to an agency. They actually, the agency actually read it, sent me a nice letter saying, It's not for us, but you know, Bettina certainly has a flair or something.
1: This is your dark comedy. Yes. Script number one. Yeah.
0: But behind the scenes, I heard that uh, it's got first script written all over it. Mm. And that was like devast. You know, for a day, it was devastating. I was devastated for one day. And then I said, Okay, fine. For me, a setback is always impetus to go double hard basically
1: so you, now i've said that phrase before for a day it was devastating i like that approach give it a day and yes. then, then do the next step and now you gotta
0: rally it's that is like sports i guess huh. and it's it's funny that it's true i talk about in life everything for me is either sports metaphor or military metaphor for me it's like huh. military operation you you don't have time to wallow you know you don't have time to fall apart or worry or you it's it, you need to pull yourself together and get things done you know that's and perhaps that's the the dad approach or the thing you learn i just the next day i decided the next one will not have first script written all over it and i would just that that's that was my entire goal it's just kind of like you tell me what the goal is and i'll go for that and i just realized i hadn't gone far enough so here was the next goal will not have first script written all over it so i became obsessive about reading scripts, analyzing movies. what is you know what what makes it look like a first script? How is that different from what I did? Um, and I kept writing and writing and found a great story. And that's really, and it's but it still took years. It took me years.
1: Which great story did you find?
0: Uh, that friend who was uh, in Berlin, and you know who I got to say with my friend Helen, um, told me about a helicopter pilot that was going to be on ABC or forgot, some, one of those 60-minute shows and helicopter pilot in Phoenix, Arizona, who's kind of a hero he uh, was flying helicopters he was the first weatherman you know, they didn't that was still new in those days in the 80s um, for a, a, a news station and the um, Maricopa County Sheriff's Department, well, the whole in all of Arizona, cops didn't have helicopters yet. So, he dedicated his life, his his helicopter, uh, 24 hours a day, for saving people if the Sheriff's Department needed him. So he was out there not only doing the weather, but then <clears throat> doing these crazy rescues, flying into canyons, you know, where literally blades are inches, you know, from from the rock on, on every side and. And um, just extraordinary stuff and he just he's, he was just amazing to me so I called him up I just called him up you know you can do that um, <laughs> and then I think from my interviewing I just already knew I just called him up and said I really like your story I'd love to write about you and he said well come on down Jerry Foster um,
1: and were you thinking screenplay or were you, yeah okay.
0: I was thinking screenplay yeah so I flew to Phoenix and I spent a week Flying around in helicopters, he did everything he could to try and make me throw up, you know, wheelies and whatever. But crazy stuff, crazy fun stuff. We He would fly to, you know, we'd take off from downtown, fly over to his ranch. Let's say at a ranch out in Carefree or somewhere, yeah, a little bit north of Phoenix with horses and whole things. So we'd be up in the ranch and we would get back in the chopper and he'd fly to Prescott because there was a, uh, parade going on and he was always an honorary part of the parade. Some of his helpers had his horses there with their beautiful studded saddles. He'd get out of the chopper, get on the horse, partake in the parade, get back in the chopper, and then we'd fly off to some other place. It was amazing. you know. That's cool, yeah. It was crazy. Like he was like just like on a horse but in the air. Um, the best part of the entire visit for me the memory was He had planned, this is what they do in Arizona for fun. Um, They rented, he and his buddies rented the side of a mountain um, up in Flagstaff. You can rent the side of a mountain for a day. And they took junker cars that were um, no longer functioning, rigged them at the top of these mountains um, on a trigger. And then they came with a huge armada of weaponry, machine guns and like, Almost military, one that had rot- like four rotating machine guns on, you know, a thing you could drive, kind of thing.
1: Sounds very and, American already. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs>
0: and what they do is they shoot at these cars. They the trigger will release the car; it'll start rolling down the hill, and you shoot at the car while it's rolling down. The hill. And I got to shoot a machine gun at a rolling car, and it was like fantastic. I would never trade, you know, any anything, any desk job. For the ability to do that kind of thing. Little
1: did you know as a first grader in Germany that you would want to yes. be shooting a machine gun in Arizona in a moving <laughs> car. So did this become a produced project? Or how did this how was this a sort of a turning point for you?
0: Well it became a script that I finally felt like, okay, this is completely professional and ready to be shown. Um, and I got it to a producer who was um, well, who's a friend, the producer said that um, he's got an agent, again, one of those. It just takes one. takes one friend, takes one producer, one agent. Um, I got it to Ari Emanuel, who is Ari Gold of Entourage, the famous agent. <laughs> okay. Um, he was my first agent. He read it. We met. He said, okay, we'll represent you. Um, that's how funny things It's like, you want to be a scenic artist?
1: And Ari Gold is based on him. Yeah. Okay.
0: And that's who my first agent was. He was a young guy. I was young. He just, you know, I had that kind of I won't be stopped um, passion and confidence by that time. And, uh, and it went from there. That got optioned. And that, that began my career, that
1: script. What year was it?
0: Um, I guess it was nine eighty nine. by mm-hmm. that time.
1: Well, it sounds like there's some some common threads. Uh, and one is that you just do things. If you <laughs> yes. De- if, you, if you decide you want to do something, you do it, which I think is, for my listeners, is just great advice. You can overthink things a million ways. Right. Um, but in doing a TV show, you'd end up being a TV host, but that opened up doors. Right. And I think it's funny that... that um, you know, Glory Road and McFarland USA go back to melting cheese on a Triscuit, you know, there's, there's <laughs> yes. certain first experiences in the entertainment industry. But the other one also, it sounds like there's sort of a learn by doing thing, you know, that mm-hmm. when you went to Berlin with that film director, you probably just absorbed a lot oh, just sure. by being there.
0: We talked about the script, All we talked about the structure, we absolutely. Learning by doing, yes. You teach yourself a lot. Um, and, uh, and just not taking no for an answer. Definitely you can do whatever you want. And that's why my dad and that all of that is important. I think you can learn that, or you can decide it. You you don't even have to have been raised that way. You can be 25, 35, 45, and just, if you haven't done it before, this is the day you start. You just don't stop. Whatever you want, you go for it. You know, there's actually no reason. We make our own limits. We literally make them in our heads. And if, you just don't see a limit, you can go as far as you want. Like my father who, from a little town, ends up with the fastest supercomputer, that was the example. You can go all the way if you want. There's, everybody along the way will try to tell you you can't. I had plenty of people say, you know, it's really not likely that you're going to be able to do anything with writing. And any time they did, it would, just, it would piss me off. It would, I would say, well, that would, again would just kick me into, well, now i'm really gonna do it it's, it's no nobody tells me no you know to something i want to do um it's always temporary setback that redoubles
1: i like this i like this um um feeling bad for a day you know
0: yes. feeling
1: depressed for a day and then <laughs> okay right. clean, clean your hands <laughs> and move on so um you know it's interesting that i uh you came onto my radar as a sports movie writer, you know, mm-hmm. of, of these, a couple of really classic inspirational sports movies with a, with a racial element and a very American core. So how did you arc from being, um, writing about the helicopter guy to being the Glory Road and McFarland, USA person?
0: Well, from uh, the helicopter guy, it, uh, that led to my first uh, script, my first assignment With Joel Silver, I had uh, several ideas, and one of them was about um, kind of like the science versus the supernatural, about uh, um, uh, storm chasers from Norman, Oklahoma that see or become aware of these strange weather patterns happening over a little town called Paradise, Kansas that actually exists. In Kansas. I'm from Kansas uh, it, so I've never been to Paradise. Yes. It's a strange thing to say.
1: <laughs> I'll have to go.
0: You have to go. We all need to get to Paradise right? someday. Uh, I went. I got on a plane and I flew to Norman, Oklahoma. I called them up at the weather you know, service. I got a hold of the volunteer fireman at, uh, in Paradise who showed me around and did my research. It became a script about a little boy who he- hears the voice of God and these sort of Old Testament um, plagues start hitting this town in Paradise, and Norman, Oklahoma, weather chasers, they were the storm chasers, go out there to investigate, and it was a whole, you know, action thing. I, I'm convinced it actually led to Twister, which came out like a year or two later. Because
1: I remember that. I, yeah. I um, also set in Oklahoma.
0: Also, and and the whole, I kind of. Characterized just how exciting a tornado can be um, and that was Warner Brothers, too uh, But so, yes, so that
1: the idea leaked or something like
0: oh that happens sure hmm. of course executives know and then they think you know This whole hurricane. I mean the the tornado thing. That's pretty cool.
1: Was that irritating? when <laughs> came
0: out? No, it's more like I'm just kicking myself like I learned something from that writing wise that I still talk about it's like the um, the principle of one is always the most effective if you want to get something made just make it about the tornado you know it's just it's called twister it's a movie about tornadoes it's not about you know um the uh, the, like a little town and the voice of god and they Ah. were like three or four elements and that can work too um but it's almost like the more elements with each element the smaller movie Hmm. literally the smaller the movie gets um
1: Maybe more of a novelistic writing approach, whereas the the um, what is it is it called high concept? The the idea. Yeah, that
0: perhaps it's high concept.
1: Pitch it in an elevator simplicity. Yeah. To movie storytelling.
0: So the more the fewer print, you know, I, parts moving parts, the bigger the movie. <laughs> so if you just got one Twister, you got a big movie. When you got three or four, you got a little movie.
1: So your tornado movie had too many moving parts. Yes,
0: it was a it was a people loved that script and I almost got it made Um, But it led to it very quickly led to the next thing and Warner Brothers is a great place to work when you're in they um, They love you and keep you on and so they just kept offering me new things. I adapted the mists of Avalon Um, I had to read a 900 page book, you know for the meeting that was dedication, but I will do that That's another thing I find that overkill is is always works. Okay. Um,
1: Ex- explain that a little bit. That's a, that's a, that's a catchy <laughs> maxim, but what does that mean?
0: Well, it means that when you go for a meeting and they say, you know, have a look at this article and let's, you know, come in and talk to us about the article. Um, one might be, if you're asleep, kind of, and that happens to me, uh, You'll just read the article, and you'll go in, go in and talk, and then you realize later I could have nowadays watched you know ten YouTube um, documentaries on this subject, read, read three more books, and I could have walked in there the expert. You hmm. know, if I really want this, you walk in and you are the expert. Um, I I have a project that was uh, centered around Maya Angelou and. There was, it was about one book, it was one of those, come in and read the book, but I read all, all nine. I read two adjunct books and all seven of Maya Angelou's books. I just read everything, okay. and nobody's going to walk in that has read nine books except you if you do that, and that's overkill, you know? Enough is never enough. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, just a rock solid way to go about things.
1: So it's like that mass of the iceberg that is buoying the top part.
0: Yeah, you have to just, that's what makes you stand out. But again, that always makes me feel about like sports analogies. You know, you have to. If you're going to be Kobe, if you're going to be anybody on a team, even on a team, just on a winning team, um, you're doing more than others. That's why you're there. So the do more than anybody else approach is kind of a
1: no-brainer. I like sports analogies for writing, actually. You know, especially that idea about dejection. You know, you can't wallow over a loss in week three. It's an FL season, so that's what I'm thinking about. Right. And just wallow for the next five weeks. You have to bounce back no, and play the next no game. No, there's no
0: time. Exactly.
1: Yeah, that's a great, a great correlate. I think as, as writers, sometimes we get a little bit caught up in the idea of the muse and our own process when, in fact, there's a very pragmatic aspect to just coming back and bringing, bringing your talents to bear again.
0: Right. No, you must, and I talk about that for writers, don't stop, you know, you have, um, at first it feels terrible and you may hate what you've written, but the key is to keep going. You can't overanalyze and rewriting is your best friend and you'll always pull it together if you stick to it kind of thing. So sports and writing, yes, the stick-to-it thing, the goal in the end is to win, to finish to get to the you know, the goal line and to have not, not have it first script written all over it.
1: Well I, I I've read that Michael Jordan, for example, who is a very, very talented basketball player, was also an obsessive practicer. you know. That mm-hmm. he would he would obsess he didn't have to necessarily. He could be one one of the best right. basketball players just by his natural talents, but it was practicing free throws. It was working on conditioning that made him, you know, un, un incomparable in the nineties, right?
0: It's how you kinda know who's gonna be successful, Don Haskins from Glory Road, the mm-hmm. coach. It um, never made it into the movie, but it was one of my favorite facts. Um, at his high school prom, where he went with his later to be wife, uh, they hung a curtain, in the middle of the, you know, the <clears throat> in the gym, and had the prom on one side, and the other side was empty. But except for him, he's in his prom gear, but he's throwing hoops. Uh-huh. Uh, be- while everybody else is dancing <laughs> and Mary his wife is standing alone by the punch bowl but that's the kind of it's a obsessive really visual scene. Too. Yes. Yeah, I loved that. Did they shoot it? No. Okay. Huh. Oh, but it it was in a very early draft. Uh, and then you have to cut out all that all that beginning thing, you know? So
1: did you spend quite a bit of time with him?
0: Yeah. Yes. I that how that finally came about, that was that was really my baby. I was... Um, that scripture's your baby? Yeah. Or, or the dog who's making a nest on the couch? <laughs> the dog is nesting, yes. I'll let her settle down for a second.
1: Well, I mean, this brings up, there's a lot of great craft stuff, which I want to go to in a second, um, because you wrote a really um, great set of uh, craft advice principles for uh, your school's literary magazine. Is it Chapman? Said?
0: I wrote it for Antioch. For Antioch. I, I did okay. my master's in um, creative nonfiction there.
1: Yeah, but before we get into the craft stuff, I'm curious to know, um, like, like now you have these very concrete, your um, biographical writing movies, you know, Don Haskins and then Jim, is that the name of the cross-country coach?
0: Mm-hmm. Jim yeah. White.
1: Jim White, yeah, Blanco, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Bessie Smith and, and this is muscle shoals. so. Um, I just was...
0: finished the Mahalia Jackson Story too. Okay. Um, that's going to directors right now for lifetime. It's another lifetime project. So yes, yeah, so it's all true stories and it's all real people and it's legends somehow, uh-huh. in one form or another. Um, but go ahead. Your question.
1: Well, I'm just curious to know the the, the journey again from this melted cheese on a Triscuit up through uh, your relationship with Warner. But those were Disney movies, weren't they? Glory Road uh, was that was yeah.
0: that yeah, Bruckheimer started with that. Started with Glory Road.
1: But, so it feels like it, just to, just to wrap up my question, it feels like that was a turning point. That Glory Road was this big movie. Uh, now you're doing a lot of a lot of big stuff. So if you could take us through that journey, just sort of creatively and professionally.
0: Yeah, from Glory Road on,
1: or up to. I mean, after Up to I, and through with <laughs>
0: Warner Brothers, I just I just did script after script. Um, and then got married and had two kids and moved to New Mexico to be able to write. And then ended up on a ranch, an 8,000-acre ranch with running cattle and the whole thing. You know, The adventures just don't stop, basically. That was always part of my life, too. And now I'm in the Western.
1: Also very American. You know, yes. Classic New Mexico setting. I love
0: that. I think coming from Europe, coming from Germany, you and then you're in this great playground, America, and it's so wide open and free, and I've always loved it. And, I've, and I approach it never taking anything for granted, you know, from an outsider's point of view. So I celebrate it. That's why I like to write stories that celebrate people that are uniquely American, somehow, um, especially. But so partially I was in that ranch with the kids and writing and then... Um, writing with uh, my husband's partner for a while. And so life was full of kids and cows. <laughs> and,
1: and screenplays. Yes,
0: and screenplays nonstop. But um, it was in being in New Mexico, living there, that I became aware of Don Haskins and his story. And it was really about the fact that he... Gave up half his team for the final game in this extraordinary sacrifice for a greater good.
1: So El Death. Paso is just down the road from it's just New down the road.
0: I, I loved his story. I just thought Don Haskins is so cool. Um, I and,
1: and just so listeners know this is the Glory Road coach who played an yes, All Black starting exactly. squad in the in the national championships. Yes, beat my beloved Kansas. This <laughs> before I was born. But so you found yes. this story in New Mexico.
0: Yes, got in the truck and found Don Haskins and you know, sat him down. Found the person Don had. Is he in El Paso? He was still coaching that year in El Paso. I think it was his last year. And he had already had his rights tied up for eight years or something. Um, Somebody at Warner Brothers, in fact, was trying to make his movie. But he was very um, disappointed with it. It had taken forever. They had made up a bunch of things. You know, and I know that you don't have to make up. I mean, you have to, of course, fictionalize things. But... The best stuff is in real life, you cannot write real life the way life, I mean, yourself. You can't come up with the stuff, that th- how things really happen. So he was wary about that and I promised him if he would let me write his story, when his rights became available, he was still tied up for two years, that I would tell his story right. I just promised him that. Um, and so two years go by and we're talking, he, he would call me up once a month and say, I talk about catfishing. Hey, Bettina how's some catfish up there. And I go, Great, Don, you got to come up. Um, but I nurture that relationship. And relationships, that's something I do want to say. From the interview, from everywhere, from the helicopter pilots to um, the uh, volunteer firemen in Paradise, Kansas, um, my relationships with the characters that I write about relationships of people that you meet along the way, they are so crucial to nurture those, to stay connected with people, it's, a career is really a career of people. That's how half of it is, you can do a whole bunch of writing, but if you also are in good stead with people and you are great to work with, um, and people enjoy being associated with you, It's. It does everything for you moving forward. And I'm still in touch with the helicopter pilot. I'm still talking to the volunteer fireman in Paradise just to check in because I'm genuinely interested. You know, it's not a cynical thing. It's not just, let me just write this story and move on. I'm, I care about these people. Um,
1: that counts for a lot. And I think it sounds like there's this ongoing thing of not, ask, not needing permission, of just approaching people, you know, yes. if they interest you. So, <laughs> yes. and, and with Don Haskins, it sounds like you were just very persistent too, you know. The, the
0: persistence is, yes, the <clears throat> confidence, I can certainly, of course, um, but the passion. I also say, they say, write what you know. You know, I don't know basketball. and I mean, I did actually play a little basketball in, in school, but um, I write about things that I really don't know about, but you can, that's what, you know, the internet these days certainly but that's what books and learning and the internet is for. You can learn about stuff. But I think write from passion. If you do anything from passion in life, you can't go wrong. If you write from passion, you can't go wrong. Um, people, it's on the page. It's in your pitch. People know what you care about when you um, when you let them feel and see your passion. And so I think that's why I say, what's the deepest truth about a story? What's... what's what is going to make me the most passionate about this truth, too? What do I care about? Things, stories of redemption, <clears throat> overcoming, loyalties. And Don Haskins, he, he, the whole reason why I want to write this story is he was a guy who drove a bus, um, you know, and he, I think he was in Kansas, too, coaching girls in a high school. Um, coaching them so hard, they stopped men- menstruating. <laughs> That's how de- determined he was. Parents complained. Um, but so he gets his first job at a college level, but it's in El Paso and at a mining college. You know, they study rocks. There's no way you're going to get any great players to do any anything in college basketball. So he's desperate. and But he grew up in Oklahoma playing basketball. He worked at a uh, feed store with a, a black kid and he and the black kid played basketball every day in the back. So maybe that's where his little inciting incident was. He just figured, well, what the hell? I'll just recruit a bunch of African-American players. They play just as good as anybody. Why, you know, why not? He didn't see color. This was at a time when...
1: Early he, 60s, is it?
0: Yes, early mm. 60s where, you know, you could have one player maybe on your team. It was just... In the south and north, often you had no black players at all. You could have one, maybe two, two when you're down, as they say. Um, but it was a, a, a ridiculous time when they thought, uh, you know, they don't have a, the heart to play. You could fake them out. Their ridiculous ideas persisted. But he thought, well, all I've seen is that they can play just as well or better. So he recruited seven. You know, at a time when you could have one, and. And that was already cool. That kind of gutsy, nervy, like I don't care, I'm just going to do what I want thing. And but he wanted nothing more than to win. He did that because he wanted to win. That's all he cared about. He wanted to win, and they did. They won an entire season. They were undefeated until their very last game. But on the very and they made it all the way <clears throat> to Adolf Rupp and playing against you know his idol, really the, right. the legend Adolf Rupp was the winningest coach. They were on their way to their fifth um straight and road championship um and uh but the night before the game he heard that adolf Rupp had said something it was slightly changed for the movie because we wouldn't didn't want to be incendiary but there was a racial comment being made Hmm. that um none of my you know black players with a different word um, would ever beat his boys and that Incensed Don Haskins so much who had gotten to know these kids and seen their heart and all of them you know into their lives and And he just and they endured so much racism along the way once they started winning uh, He found bullets in his pocket and and death threats came to the house and you know a knife stuck in the motel room um, in the table and so by the time he got to that final game, the night before the game, and he hears this, he makes the decision, I'm only going to play the black players. And he has to sit down his team and tell his white guys who have played just as hard all the way along, I'm sitting, you're going to have to sit this one out, this is, um, and the, that gives me goosebumps thinking about it now, the sacrifice the white players did for their fellow um, players to do that and say, this is your game. and. You know, anybody, if half your team is uh, injured, that's a disaster. Hmm. He voluntarily gives up half his team. And with that kind of guts, and just says, I'm only playing my black players. And this is at a time you have never seen five starting black players on the court. It was the first year it was televised. So these five guys walk out, and it was just sent a shockwave, you know, across America. And for all African-Americans watching that game, I've talked Hmm. to a lot of people who remember seeing that. And it was just... It was way beyond just the game, you know, what that did in that moment. It changed the world. It changed the game. Um, and then they beat them handily. And, yeah. and you know, it's I just, I don't know. I, I will be his fan forever. I just thought, and what all of them did, the, the team, I just, I, you know, that's what drove me. I had to tell the story because of that because of that emotional moment. And I'm passionate about that because of everything that that says. Everything that that says about what's good in human beings, about grit, determination, overcoming, and all those themes about coming together, of taking care of each other, um, all the good things.
1: Did you find Jim White's story too? Or was did, that, did somebody bring that to you on The Strength of Glory Road?
0: Somebody came with a, a Mary Martin, a producer, who had actually found a Sports Illustrated article, or somehow she was even instrumental in getting that written, I think. She, in any case, found the story, a uh, little-known story at, at all, about Jim White and this team of runners. They had won, I think, nine out of 12 years. They were state champions, um, the winningest record of any high school sport in California. Hmm. And um, so she had gotten the rights tied up, she signed everybody in town basically, and brought it to producers and then it came to me because of the, um, on the strength of Glory Road, yeah. And so yes, so it became that way, but still you have to pitch it, you have to have an idea for it, you have to go and talk to the whites and talk to all the runners and so on. So spent time in McFarland and got into that whole world and by that time I'd been living in New Mexico for ten years and lived in a very Hispanic world. Um, very tied into it and so understood a lot of that story, too
1: So there's a lot of reporting. There's a lot of journalism. Yeah. sort of feeding into your scripts.
0: Yes, there's definitely a lot of that Yes, absolutely.
1: And you've written or 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 going to write about Bessie Smith and Mahalia Jackson uh, Were those projects brought to you or those projects that you? Um...
0: Bessie Smith. Yes, they are they're it basically a producer or the agent or you know might say people have a project and they're looking for somebody and um, in the case of Mahalia Jackson I wrote a, about Robert Durst um, the first time I really did a crime thing like that it was interesting but still a true story about um, Robert Durst the wife of Robert Durst, <clears throat> <the wife throat> of Robert Durst yeah. yes and a little bit off of center for me what I it's not the you know inspiring story but There was still passion in that she was, you know, I believe very clearly from what I see she was murdered and she was in any case documentedly abused by her husband Robert Durst and so I wrote that for her. That was kind of my sticking up for the underdog to try and write that story. But that way I already became familiar with people at Lifetime and was producer Linda Berman and she knew about Mahalia Jackson and brought it to me because she knew this would be
1: so you, you're, my interest. So you have become this go-to life, true story writer. Yes. Life story. Yes. Um, true life protagonist type writer.
0: Yes. The irony is that when I didn't know what I wanted to do really, and I took my first writing class um, in Berlin, I had a professor who was really like, always grilling me, trying to, you know, drill down, are you really, is this really what you want to do? Um, and there was a day when he was saying, well, what's what's the last book that you read? You know, he just sort of ambushed me with that question. And I'm the kind of person, if you ask me a question like that, my mind goes blank, and it's like I've never read a book in my life. Um, I couldn't think of anything <laughs> except the one book I really loved, but it had been a couple of years since I read it, was... Uh, the world according to Garp and John Irving yes um, I was obsessed with that book I loved that book I I didn't even know yet why Hmm. but I was obsessed with that book and it's a life story book it's it's i love all life stories that begin you know from the beginning to the end I'm fascinated with basically those steps along the way where we make our decisions where fate takes over where these act breaks are in life that lead us to certain things, accomplishments or a great fall, the rise, rise and fall, um, all those kind of things that, that was, in fact, The World According to Garth was clearly the, my first indication how much I love true stories and life stories. And so, here I am, yeah. He was trying to show me that I wasn't passionate about writing, <laughs> ironically, that's...
1: And, and here you are. Now. Here I am. One more question before we get to craft Muscle Shoals. That's TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, also based on real people. yes. Uh, and so what's what's in store there? Have you done much TV writing?
0: I've well, I've done TV movies now, um, okay. not TV series. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read Rick Hall. and again, it's like Rick Hall is sort of the Don Haskins of Muscle Shoals. Um, comes from. The most abject poverty. I read his book, and it's reading the book. I lost my mind over the story. I just thought, this Rick Hall—that's he's the story. This man and what he did. And then and did he set up a studio in Muscle Shoals? Yeah. yeah, he he grew up in the hills, basically in the absolute abject poverty. I mean, they aspired to the poverty line. They were that poor. They didn't have beds to sleep on. Straight, you know, straw bales. No. Shoes in winter, uh, snow would come in through the roof in winter, no outhouse, that's too fancy, tree stumps, you know, that's the bathroom. Huh. Um, that's how poor he was and he went from that to you know, producer of the year, of the world um, in 1973 and the trajectory again of that.
1: And what kind of acts did he work with?
0: He worked with Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett, Percy Sledge, all those great singers. In the middle of <clears throat> Alabama, Jim Crow Alabama, he's now a white dude who uh, has a bunch of, you know, kids playing on the band, a bunch of white, pasty-faced white kids um, who played some of the most soulful music together. And and that story is really about how black and white come together in the studio to make music. And in that, and you're the same, you know, your music is the great unifier. Um, and how we can again overcome those are the themes, you know, that prejudice and and all the things you learn about yourself along the way. And there's just and it's a beautiful story, really, about Linda Hall and Rick Hall. They're the core of the series now, and so it'll be different acts coming in and out of different um, uh, seasons and episodes. But I'm just fi- finishing the pilot, so.
1: There's so much. There's so much vibrant Americanness in everything you write about. Yet <laughs> yes. you're you're from Europe originally. Does that give you a perspective? I mean, how does it give you a a more objective perspective to sort of put these pieces I think so. together?
0: I think sometimes you see European filmmakers do some very American things because partially you're fascinated with this great thing called America. Um, but also, yes, I I think that I don't come with. any of the prejudices any of the preconceived notions that perhaps you you inadvertently pick up when you grow up in a country you just Hmm. you pick it up in the culture and i'm coming from like none of it makes sense the race thing doesn't make sense you know for me um it seems absurd so perhaps that's why i just like throwing myself in front of the girl against the bullies i this is just another form of that i'm just seeing why are these people being mistreated and it's not fair and i have to do something i don't know that's just so yeah i don't come with whatever might be instilled you pick up you can't even help it you know
1: yeah i guess there's there's this these decisions to do the right thing you know um, from your bullying when you're young, but then it sounds like these characters that right. you write about are people who who've made a decision in this co- complicated place called America and its racial landscape in particular to make the right decision in, in, mm-hmm. in difficult circumstances so
0: right one more thing I was going to say just it might it's it is conscious to me um, I'm a woman writing. <clears throat> And as a female writer, my first script was about a helicopter pilot, you know, and then it's about storm chasers and and tornadoes. Um, And I also teach young writers sometimes, and I see in women, often in the very beginning, we do these little exercises, and and the stories take place in the kitchen. (laughs) And I always want to say, get out of the kitchen. Um, uh, And I think that's where my father was important. I never wrote like a woman, you know, and, and I, I have to deal with that as a female writer in the business. I just have shown enough, and I have enough material that shows that this is what I do. I will write about Rick Hall, um, just like I do at Don Haskins or the helicopter pilot about um, the complicated male genius. Um, but it can be the complicated female genius like Bessie Smith and Mahalia Jackson, you know, tremendous, courageous, overcoming um, ball busting (laughs) women, um, just that is something, sometimes you get this, you know, the chick stories, and I'm just, I like, and it's not that I like male material, it's not necessarily that. I think about this in in German, there's the word mensch, and mensch has no gender, it's just, um, well, mensch in Yiddish
1: means like a super nice person. Right, right. Yeah. he's a mensch, yes. Mm-hmm. Is it the um, same in German?
0: In mensch it actually just simply means a human being, but you can't say, it's even say the word human being without the word man being in it, you know? Mm. You're a woman, and there's a man. There's always the male, in, in just in the language, focuses the fact that you're a man, and somehow, and I'm just a mensch, I, and I like to write, write about mention about human beings. Um, that are just simply, it has, doesn't matter what gender you are. There is a state of being a human being, I guess. And I've finally gotten myself to that point where I don't just get you know the romantic stories or the whatever just because the assumption is I'm a woman, so I'm going to write about that. Um, and that's, that's my greatest achievement. And for me, I'm so happy to be able to write about everybody.
1: So 25 years of writing your way out of... <laughs> Prescriptions and yes. what you're supposed to write about. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice specific to maybe my women listeners who are who are wrestling with this?
0: Well, certainly don't take no for an answer. But um, I think if you're interested in, you know, I if you're interested in this material, you probably had a little bit of the kind of upbringing I had. I. I'm great friends with Teresa Tapia, the the widow and wife of Johnny Tapia, the boxer, whose autobiography I wrote, and, um, and we get along because her dad. She was raised by her dad, and all they did was talk about sports. Um, I wrote about a young woman who was a race car driver at, at 19, and had already had 15 years of experience. Um, it was her and her dad. The. There is something that I wish all women could get, and that is, like I said before, that's the lesson about going out there and going for things, you know? Just, I think when men get together and talk, they talk about sports, not because it's necessarily about the sports. What they're doing is they're constantly training analysis, strategy, and goal setting, you know? It's, what's gonna happen when this coach moves here, and what this team, and now that they've got this player, this is about strategy and it's about logic and these kind of things are great tools to have um so i just hope even fathers out there listening you know sit down with your daughters take them to baseball games or whatever and talk to them about these things because these are skills everybody needs and so as a woman writer just don't you know go for it whatever it is i you can it, you might have to do twice as much work, that often is the case, um, but again, don't take no for an answer.
1: I think the father point is a good one too, because I think sometimes men are compelled to give advice, but yours was more Im- immersion than advice. You were just in the world of your father um, right. and picking, and I'd never thought about it that way. I listen to sports podcasts, but there is a lot of analysis. A lot of guys who All haven't picked time. up a football in 20 years Giving pretty sparse analysis of what's wrong with this football team. <laughs> right. right,
0: great training in life because yeah. you apply that the the analysis ability and strategy and logic and um, and intention and all those things to everything you do, and you need those skills. Yeah, yeah. so
1: to the fathers of daughters out there, just, yes. just sort of include the daughter. You know, don't just give her advice, but include her in these in these processes. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Do we have time to talk about craft? Sure. And so this, the, the advice I found online is from Antioch? hmm That's from where, from where you studied? Yes,
0: was? Lunch Ticket. It's their literary magazine, and I wrote... Uh, I was a blog contributor for a year.
1: While you were studying or after you were done?
0: While I was studying. And,
1: and you got that... You got that... You'd already been in Hollywood. You must have been in Hollywood for a while. Why would you get an MFA?
0: Um, it's also for teaching, mm-hmm. if, if I <clears throat> want to. It's... Um, and I do... I love talking to young writers. I love talking with young people about writing. I love—I don't know—it's. I can sort of give a lot of what I've, you know, achieved and also just earned and worked on hard. Um, I love passing it along.
1: You have a you have a teacherly manner. Actually, you you (laughs) present things in a very—I don't know—in a very. I don't know if digestible is the right in just a, a very yes, clear way
0: it's I do think about that and I think partially it's a It's like translation almost anything even writing is translation. That's funny coming from another language I think I'm aware of translating you need to make the other person understand hmm. What you're hmm. trying to say as a writer as a teacher and in life You know people who can't give directions drive me absolutely nuts right. it's like wait. No, just walk me through it in a way that I can Comprehend see it and then you know, there's an art to it um,
1: When well, it's not I was raised by teachers both my parents are teachers But you see a lot of experts people who are very good at what they do Who don't know that they don't can't make that translation. They can't make that transition Right. Um, they feel like well They're sitting at my feet and they'll absorb something <laughs> when in fact they don't realize that mm-hmm. the, the vocation of teaching so All right. Well, we probably don't have time to cover these all but there's some great ones in here so um, Forget needing to know. Is yes, number one. I think it's about process and voice. What did you mean by that?
0: Well, pr- process and voice means um, you can work your way into any story. That's why I say you don't have to write about write what you know. Um, passion, research, uh, delving into something. Um, I mean, I'm working on. Probably developing 12 things, you know, it's my brain will explode but in each case I've delved deeply into Las Vegas of the 50s and the entire story of the Mafia um, <clears throat> during that time of, of um, the black American music scene during that time of Whatever it is. I knew nothing about it perhaps starting but you become an expert that's part of the overkill it's part of the really really mm. immerse in everything um you don't know in the beginning you you find your way there and the other part of that process is also um immersion and that is that's how i have to write i i can't write abstractly and anything i do is I have to live there, I have to feel it, I have to see it in my head. It's almost like the mind experiments of Einstein. I can. I, they'll play everything that I do and write, and even every, everything I do, if I'm going to cook a meal um, for ten people, I literally cook the whole thing in my head first uh, before I do it. That's, that's what I have to do, and writing even more so. So I sometimes I just get on the internet and I start dreaming, looking, looking at images. They start to get my head into that place, into the 50s. Because like, hmm. I'll be writing about ancient India, then I have to go to Las Vegas in the 50s. Now I'm you in know, Berlin, Einstein, whatever I'm writing about. They're so diverse that I need ways to f- quickly immerse. And the internet helps sometimes. I'm just looking at images even. And then you start to dream and imagine. And that's where the knowing kind of comes with your own Immersion into the story
1: and is this specific to research or can you also write your way into knowing?
0: Um, Well, there's a definitely a process of discovery while you're writing Mm -hmm. so besides the research There's something else that happens and that is um, Voices start to come up they characters might still be abstract you're just kind of putting down lines and you know they're going to say something but it's still terrible and but then th- there's just that moment where it all comes to life and suddenly it's real and you've created something that lately i've just been thinking about that you've literally created a world and it exists now it it like maybe in a parallel universe but it actually exists it is not just like a couple of words on the page um, you've it's there, somewhere, until it gets on the screen, it's already existent. And that's that's the process that happens while you're writing. That discovery, it's just the world starts to take you over. Suddenly, characters will make jokes that would never occur to me, but huh. they somehow come out of my head. It's partially um, my empathy. I start talking like them in my own head. Um, you know, I used to always rehearse, just be fascinated listening to people talk and just ape them in my head or, you know, what does that sound like or feel like? Like and I would think specifically of McFarland, there was some time where I thought, I would never think of telling this joke, but how does a character suddenly Tell this joke, you know, where does does that come from?
1: Which is it a specific joke from the movie?
0: Yeah, it was the Taco Bell, you know, they don't run through to the Taco Bell behind in front of them or a cop behind them or something. It's um, <laughs> where these things come from. Then I just um, it's it's a weird alchemical process because somewhere it's real.
1: Well, there's the alchemical process, but some of your writing advice also is about not letting the characters be. Too insipid in the way they talk or not have Definitely. unnecessary. necessary. So talk a little bit about
0: no empty dialogue I'm yeah. a big big Stickler on that. And um, what do you mean by
1: empty dialogue?
0: Empty dialogue is hello. Hi. How are you? Come in? Thank you sit down. All right um, th- We've heard those a million times and I say the random do a random page test grab any script you know online or anything and just randomly look at a page you will never ever find those words anywhere. Um, There might be 1% of all scripts where it's a specific kind of stylistic use to do empty dialogue because it's you're almost like commenting on emptiness in the characters but find any way to say hello hi how are you in a different way most most of the time you don't even say it. Um, I had a student who wrote a script where the mother opens the door and the daughter's there, and she says, "Hi, hi, honey, come in." And I just thought, and I said, "How about like they don't say anything? That's already more interesting than that, because hmm. I'm going to sleep when I see hi, hello. I'm. It's it's all about the manipulation of the reader's or the viewer's mind too. Um, you need to keep them engaged. So I thought, well, what if the daughter says, "What took you so long?" Um, when she opens the door. Now I'm paying attention, and now you've grabbed the audience with something because they're figuring what's going on between these two people, because we always want to know what's happening with everybody in the world. And hi, hello, I'm, I'm, I'm sleeping. What's, what took you so long? I'm like a, a sitting up now going, I wonder what's going on between those two.
1: Yeah, there's no there's no tension or imbalance or story in high and hello Right, whereas what took you so long is immediately narrative,
0: right? So it's better if you find sometimes we write those things. It's fine But just cut them later cut them Hmm. better to have nothing or Find a unique way of saying the same old thing. We've heard a million times You know even invert the sentence that phrase everybody uses just flip it Anything it's got to be different.
1: You also talk about line leaks. Yeah, line the line X. leaks are yeah.
0: a big one. Try that on any line. Um, this is for dialogue. A lot of writers do this. Uh, you start a sentence for a character saying, well, I thought I was going to go to the mall. Um, if you take the well is like, for me, it's, it's clutter. It's like an extra word you don't need. Uh, we think it sounds natural by doing that. There are the words well, so, yeah, no and yes, too. Just forget those because the response is always the affirmative or the negative. You don't need no and yes. But um, if you cut that well off, suddenly it might, for us as writers, feel just a tiny bit jarring, like slamming right into that thought. But for an actor and for just the scene and for the impact, it's so much stronger when you don't have well or yeah or so. Um, I'm going to the mall. I'm going to the mall is better than well. I'm going to the mall Um, Once in a while you need it, but in the end go through your script and cut 95% of them 99% leave one or two
1: So is a big tick. I have as an interviewer. Actually, I, I preface transitions with so unnecessarily so
0: yeah, that's it's We just do that These are crutches and it's okay. Everything's okay, I say in writing. That's why I say just in the beginning, just be hard on yourself and don't be hard on yourself at the same time. It's like, that's the kind of dilemma. But never stop. Never beat yourself up. You know, you're going to fix it. I've had some things where I thought this is the worst thing I've ever written and by the time I rewrote it was the best thing I'd ever written. It's, that's just the process and I know enough now to when I hate something I've just done. I'll get it there. I'll get it there.
1: Well, that's part of your advice. Hate away, you say. (laughs) Hate away, which I think I know what you're talking about, but Mm -hmm. can you explain a little bit what that, what does that mean?
0: Yes. Don't let that, you know, discourage you. It's all about the, um, you know, be upset for a day thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, don't say, oh God, this is so bad. I'm a bad writer. You can't go to that conclusion. You can just say, yeah, this sucks. And I write. I write that on my own page. I wrote, "This is the worst thing I've ever written," and on one script, which ended up the best thing I'd ever written. But
1: which script was it?
0: It was a. It's a called uh, Down Low, and it was about a. It was a pilot, my first pilot. I haven't done it yet. I've, I haven't gotten it made, but it made it, it got a huge response. It's still a writing sample, and it's something that uh, it's a cop story, undercover kind of mm. thing about another true story great story about Donald Coins, who has the biggest amount of, still holds most of the records of big busts in California, who is a double agent. You know, he'd be home, <clears throat> couldn't afford a lawnmower and driving a little VW car and a wife and a kid, and then he'd go to work, and work was becoming Raymond Castillo, this guy who flew airplanes, who had a 5,000 square foot mansion in Scottsdale with unlimited credit card. And you know, Bentley and helicopters and planes and cigarette boats—that was his life, as in his job. And the story is about him having to manage these two wow. sides of himself. Um, and it's all true too. Again, fabulous.
1: This remind—is it? Do you ever worry that there's more stories than you can tell?
0: Yes, it's, it's becoming that. I'm yeah. like, everything is so exciting. Everything must be told. Um, there's so much great stuff out there, but. That's why I'm, uh, all I do is work, because I love it. Um, developing, you know, so many things, 10 things. <laughs> um, I just, because life is amazing. Life is just amazing, you know. When you're, and when you're able to just do this, what I do, I'm all I'm doing every day is flying around and in the world. Um,
1: One thing that occurs to me, too, is that we, we encounter life at the received level so much. We turn on our Twitter feed and see what people think or we watch movies and see how people live. But the act of going and meeting people, sitting down and having coffee and hearing a life story. Right. Um, you know, even even just as a journalist in and interview, people like to talk about themselves. People don't listen to each other's stories. There's right. amazing stories all around. Mm-hmm. I started I've started interviewing my parents and all these amazing things they did in life and I didn't know because I didn't think to ask. You know? Yeah. So it, so it feels like there's just the world is so full of so many stories.
0: Basically, that's how I approach every human being now. I know they have a story. Everybody has a story of something that happened to them. Everybody has an inciting incident. Everybody is doing what they're doing because of something that happened before. It's like, I call that story logic. It's literally now I can predict what things happen in real life based on how stories go. I'll have a friend who says some disaster and say, "Oh no, this just happened. What if this happens?" And I'll say, "No, that won't happen because that's not how the story goes." You know, <laughs> in, in a story, this is what's going to happen. And and in a way, we can write our own stories if you approach it that way. Uh, you know, we're not just recipients of. We I mean, we can be recipients of disasters, but in stories, that's an act break. You know, <laughs> that's just that's where things change. That's where the character now has to. Kick into some kind of gear and learn, or and change, or fight and battle, or whatever it is. And I guess that's why I like writing about true stories because that's—it's all about life. It's literally how life goes. So,
1: one person's horrible disaster is another person's second plot point.
0: Yes. Well, every—it is for everybody. Literally, it—it it also is. Rarely do I mean. Yes, there are those stories where something bad just happens and then they just. Crash and burn I guess um, I guess that's not a story. It's the story is change with meaning um, Something has to change and it has to mean something.
1: Well, I think there's a corollary here too because writing something you hate and then quitting it is is Finishing the story before it's a story whereas writing something you hate and then going back to it and realizing right. it's your best piece of writing right. And that almost applies to life that there's defeats mm-hmm. in life that we could wallow in our defeats and think that the story is over um, right. when in fact make it a story that's almost the, the the imperative is is to keep at it until the story has reached its its proper ending
0: absolutely that's why I apply polarity i talk about that in writing too the opposition somehow stories work through opposition um there's the ironic opposition there's the guy who hates water ends up on the boat that's a story because we're always dealing with opposition. So certainly a disaster happening, the opposition is, how do I overcome and come to victory in the end? Um, that's what makes it a story. So, yes, when you find yourself at a low point, think of what is the opposite of this moment um, and how do I make this the story, basically. It's
1: how does the person, what will the water bring out of the person who's afraid to be on the water? Yes. Birthing. This feels like a good place to end. You've given me so many good insights. Any final bits of advice for life or the creative process in general?
0: Um, yeah, life or the creative <laughs> it, life is a creative process, and uh, I think it just I think for everybody, be grateful that you're here. The fact that you can even be, that you're listening to a podcast, that you're able to tell stories, that you have parents that you can interview, everything is amazing. If you approach life with a certain understanding of gratitude, how great things are, A, you're constantly fed by positive passion, um, and that goes into your work, that goes into your everyday life, it's how people perceive you. Just not worrying about the little things, you know, there are so many big, important things that happen, I like to write about them. So, I don't worry about, you know, tiles, like, (laughs) The color of tiles is wrong. Certain people have, you know, giant problems. And I, I think it keeps me honest, writing and thinking about people who really have true great obstacles to overcome. And I, I'm just grateful for life always. I think that's, that's the best thing, just to live life at your absolute fullest in writing and through, through writing is how I do it, but yes.
1: Awesome. Well, I can I can feel it. I can feel your exuberance just in talking to you, and I appreciate you talking to me.
0: Absolutely. Thank you.
1: This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Bettina's career and her online writing tips, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.